Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Kim and Becky Kramer, Kramer Vineyards in Gaston. It's June 24th, 2020. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, first question, most important question, uh, why wine? <laughs> Do I get to go first because I'm older? I guess. All right, well, why wine? Um, so as mom and dad mentioned, um, growing up here, I didn't think wine was going to be a thing that I did, except for maybe drinking it. Um, and then uh, 20 years ago, I started working at, for Mark Velasek at St. Innocent Winery. And um, there are a couple of things that happen there. One is when you work at a small winery, even if it's tasting room and you're not, and production isn't part of your job, chances are you'll get exposed to production at some point along the way. Uh, and I discovered that I really liked production work, uh, a little more than tasting room work, although that's still very much part of what I do here. And uh, also he had a sparkling wine program at the time. And, uh, and I was fascinated by that because as a young 20-something, well, 22, I think I was when I started working for him, um, I just, I, I loved sparkling wine at that point. So where my parents were making wines that, I mean, they were fine, but I wasn't, I wasn't as interested in the making of them. Mm -hmm. um, and so sparkling wine was re what really, really drew me in. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then a few years into my time there, he sent me to um, go to Chemeketa to my making school and where I got to learn how to do my cellar tasks better and uh, also develop my own palate because wine tasting classes are a really important part of, of that process. And then, uh, and then they also had a, a business and marketing aspect, mm -hmm. which if you make wine, you have to understand who's going to be buying your wine, otherwise you're not going to be making it for very long. And um, so through all of those things, uh, that's uh, what got me into making my first sparkling wine for myself. Mm -hmm. And so it's really through that, that entry point of sparkling wine that, that led me here. Uh, for me, um, well, I will say it was a shocker when Kim came back to the family business because she had no interest in the winery when we were growing up. Uh, I always loved working at the winery. I've always, and then I discovered I love the business aspect of it myself. And, you know, I love gardening and I love just being outside. So I always knew I wanted to come back to the uh, family business. It was just a matter of time. Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, you know, had multiple different hospitality jobs um, growing up and definitely worked here a bit. Um, in college, um, I actually had, uh, I worked for an attorney's office for quite a while, like five or six years or so. And then once I graduated college, that was, um, you know, when I was making the decision, you know, I wanted to buy a small business that wanted experience before I came back to this, to the family business. And I ended up buying a wine bar and, um, ran that for about five years until I, um, felt like it was time for me to come back to the family business. 
so I've been back since 2017 now I think so I'm, I'm curious um, you mentioned uh, different experiences growing up and you were interested all along you didn't really care for it maybe except for the finished product mm -hmm. tell me about what it's like growing up uh, in this kind of space and watching the vineyard grow and, and the business grow well I didn't appreciate it nearly enough. I wanted to live in town with my friends and and be able to not have to ask someone to drive me into town uh, or anything like that. But one, one thing I did do is uh, play outside a lot. So I feel like that gives me some sort of innate knowledge about the soils and the different soil types that we have here on the property. And also, um, when you're a kid, uh, I think all of us ate our fair share of grapes, especially as they got got sweeter and got riper. And so when we're trying to make a determination of when to pick, uh, I also have a sense of what the fruit should taste like. I don't know that I could describe it to you, but I but I know what, sh what ripe Chardonnay tastes like. Mm -hmm. I know the difference in the texture shift from when we should be doing a sparkling harvest to the still wine harvest. And it's just one of those things that you know because you've grown up with those with those flavor profiles um, on the winery end of things it has been interesting seeing um, how mom and dad plans changed from where their production area would be uh, our building the original building has been added on to twice we're talking about adding on to it a third time um, and also um, creating the guest experience, tailoring the guest experience. When they started, nobody was charging tasting fees. Mm -hmm. You could pick whatever wines you wanted. And now we have a much more uh, like thoughtful, um, uh, very curated experience, especially now during COVID, um, where really from the time of arrival until they, and then even after they leave, um, having this you know, really well thought out uh, path for each person to take when they come up here. So I, th I think that, you know, seeing, seeing that evolve over the last 30, yeah, 30 years has been really amazing. Um, and so I guess it's just, yeah, the, the growth of uh, like wine tourist culture. What about you growing up here? What are, you, what are your kind of memories from, from growing up in the industry and, and watching things grow here? Well, for me, it's been, um, sorry, <laughs> I think I've had to answer this question. Um, I think the, how the industry as a whole has evolved has been really fascinating to watch because when we first opened and planted vines, um, you know, my parents are considered pioneers and, um, so it's been interesting to watch, you know, the first few wineries like grow and evolve and then you know there was that big boom in like late 90s 2000s or so where the industry just exploded and it's still exploding and um so that's been an interesting thing to watch it's been a lot of fun to watch the business evolve over the years you know kim mentioned how you know we kept adding on to the building and um it's just the growth has been a lot of fun the growth and um yeah the, i don't know Sorry. <laughs> no, no, totally fine. I'm, I'm curious when, when you were kids uh, and, and, and your friends asked you what your parents did, did they, did they believe that you were 
parents were growing grapes and making wine? I don't know if it was different for Becky. So we're seven years apart. And so for for me, uh, growing uh, the school that I went to, well, both of us went to, a lot of religious kids in that school. My parents produced alcohol. Um, a lot of them didn't really... I think the understanding of the wine business in the late 80s and early 90s is very different than what that impression would be now. But, you know, some of my parents or my... Um, friends their parents thought I was a bad kid or thought I'd be a bad influence and uh and I don't know that Becky came up against that quite as much or maybe at so. all uh compared to me like, there were some parents that wouldn't let their kids come over here which you know I get it if uh uh based on how big the industry was at that time um but yeah to me it was so curious because you know, my parents were farmers and it's not like at 12 years old me and my friends were going down into the cellar, so yeah. Um, so that 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 was that's what I remember. And then you know there were some some other people that, that thought it, that uh, thought it was cool. But yeah, my experience was like, what is that? It wasn't until like maybe if, uh, I got to until the industry grew and got more famous, uh, and I got a little bit older, where um, where my peers would have reactions that are more like oh that's really interesting or oh wow that's a that's a thing that people can do so I'm curious uh, you talked about you uh, we'll start with you, you first Becky since you had kind of the, the, the design all along on coming back so you, you talked about you wanted to own a small business first so tell me about the process of setting up get, get, starting the urban decanter finding what you wanted to do, running it, and then feeling like you're ready to come back. So tell me, tell me through the beginning of that especially, like how did you decide what you wanted to do and, and how did you get it started? So I, um, uh, at, the t at that point I was working for an attorney's office in Beaverton and I had been writing business plans because I was like, oh, what about like a, a brewery um, um, type place or, you know, some, I wanted to do something with food and alcohol. And um, so I was writing different business plans, feeling out what I really felt like I had a um, passion for, basically. Mm -hmm. And my manager at the time, who lived in Forest Grove, she said she brought it to my attention that Urban Decanter was for sale. So I actually was the, I bought it from the gals who started it. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, okay, that's a reasonable price. I can do that. So I ended up purchasing it and um, yeah, just shortly after graduation, went into running a, the the small wine bar. So it was mostly you know food and wine focused, and um, you know took what the the skeleton that the owners had, the original owners started with, and put my own twist on it, and grew the business. Um, and it was it was a lot of fun, a lot of learning over those five years, and definitely no regrets. And now it's interesting to look back and you know like. Making that decision to sell was really hard, but once I sold it, it was such a relief because I was like, okay, now I'm back at my family business. So, you know, I don't really miss the business, which is weird to say, but I miss like, you know, the people that I worked with and all of our customers. And, um, you know, I made some great relationships through that business, but I, it was really interesting to me to just like go through that and all the feelings and emotions and feel settled about it. You mentioned putting putting your own twist on kind of an existing existing framework. Yeah. What were some of the things that you did there that you're particularly proud of or or, or, or learned from uh, while you were at the Urban Decanter? Uh, so just getting creative on how to draw more business in. Mm -hmm. 
um, and really analyzing, you know, the pr the prices on the menus and seeing what you can tweak to, you know, increase your profit and also just really um, using my palette for wine um, to bring in wines on the shelf because it was super important for me to stand behind the wines that we sold and um, sometimes winemakers didn't exactly like what I would have to say to them about like not carrying their wines but you know it was important to me that you know if I'm gonna sell this bottle I want them to know that um, you know it's got Becky's seal of approval <laughs> and that's important when you have a wine shop because your reputation you know as of having a good palate mm -hmm. is what will help you thrive so and then also with the food um, uh, I was doing um, one event that I actually do miss doing was called uh, farm to fork so I would get produce from the farmers market and then create a little tasting menu the following day and with wine pairings and that was a lot of fun because it was just like it really got me in the creative cooking mode and um, I had to work with what I had and I'd always try to buy things from the farmers market that I wasn't familiar with or have never cooked with before and just yeah come up with recipes and um, serve them to the guests the following day and that was a lot of fun I miss that one what were the biggest things you took away from that that you brought when you came back into the family business? What were the like? What were the sort of successful lessons for yourself, or what did you want? What did you want to bring back into uh, the, the business? A lot of it's just running and managing a small business. So everything from um, you know managing cash flow, managing inventory, um, customer service, um, uh, marketing staffing I mean it was you know I did it all there and so I learned um, a lot about all aspects of small business so and I also went through some um, PCC programs because they have some great small business programs and um, got a grant through the city of Forest Grove to um, take some classes and that was fun because uh, it was basically it was like a real-life school project so like here's my small business, these are the areas we need to uh, work on, and in those classes you really analyze them and um, the instructor would help you on how to grow your business and how to, you know, succeed. And that was fun because you were with people of all different types of businesses, from brick and mortar to online only, to people who have been in business for um, 80 years to brand new startups. It was really fascinating. So. So, okay, let's, go, let's go back to you for a second here. Uh, as you, how, if, if, if wine wasn't something that interested you, how did you end up at St. Innocent in the first place? Oh, that's easy. So, uh, <laughs> I was living in, I was living in Salem. So, they're in West Salem now, but they were in North Salem mm -hmm. at the time. And I was living in my first apartment. And my mom went to some kind of professional event with Mark Vlasic, the owner. Mm -hmm. And um, he mentioned to her that he was looking to open up his tasting room on the weekends. Uh, and my mom was like, hey, well, my daughter lives like five miles from you. It wasn't even that. I think I lived like two miles from the winery. It was so close. And it, it, I was um, pretty comfortable with being in tasting rooms. I spent my childhood in a tasting room. Um, so it seemed like a really easy way for me to make money um, while I was going to school. And... Um, and so yeah, it was really as easy as that. 
and I, I, it could have, it could have been anything at that point, you know, but, um, but it's, it just seemed like it made a lot of, a lot of sense. And then I ended up staying for eight years. What was it about when you started getting into production? What was it about production that, that grabbed you? What was intriguing to you? Well, so the thing about, um, about the way that, that, St. Innocent was doing things is at that time they had no vineyards, no estate vineyards at all. And I'm, co and I'm coming from my family's perspective, which is almost entirely estate based. And so I'm having to learn about different AVAs and different, and different vineyards. Some vineyards were uh, certified organic, one certified biodynamic, um, and you know, soil types, elevation. So I'm having to learn all of these stories about the vineyards and trying to connect that to the wines in the tasting room as I'm sharing that with the customer. And of course, people would have all these questions about how the wine was made too. And it seemed like once I got out into production that everything made sense. And so from the sorting of the grapes to um, visiting the vineyard sites to do crop estimates, um, it, it just seemed like the more I learned about the behind the scenes stuff, it made talking about the wines so much easier. It wasn't just a data point on a tech sheet. Um, I, could, I could really connect all those dots and then share that with the guest. And I think that initially anyway, that to me was really helpful, but then I also discovered in the process that it's pretty interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what point did you decide that was something you wanted to pursue? Um, well, I don't know that I even understood that I was pursuing it as I was pursuing it, but in 2006, um, there was uh, some hard press Chardonnay juice that was gonna be thrown down, down the drain at the winery. And I was like, well, I could use that. I could use that to make some sparkling wine for myself. And so, um, so they let me have it. Um, I came out with a barrel and filled up a barrel and then took it back to my house. And, um, and I made my first sparkling wine in my garage. And then uh, when I decided I wanted to come and work up here and help out in the cellar up here, uh, because of the success of the garage program that I had, um, she riddled it in the back of the PT Cruiser. I that did. Was her rental yeah, car. riddling in the back of the, of the PT Cruiser. <laughs> it was, it's a, it was the only, the Driving best way, around. the best way I could think of how to do it with no equipment. Um, so, so when I came back here, that was the, one of the first things I noticed. So my first harvest with the family was in 2008, and that was a cooler, later, slightly wetter, especially towards the end year. And Dad was doing some late cluster thinning. He was cutting off the unripe stuff. Um, um, and I thought, oh, that's such a shame because I could probably use that for sparkling production. And I wouldn't do that now, but like that was my, my initial, mm -hmm. initial feeling. And so I started to see these opportunities for sparkling production here and in 2009 i talked mom and dad based on how my garage program went um to to experiment with uh, a little bit of, of sparkling wine here so i think i think i got them to allocate me a ton of chardonnay and a ton of pinot noir and we'd take the fruit from areas of the vineyard that historically struggle to to ripen for still wines 
So for them, they're like, great, I can unload this fruit that we don't have to net or sort through or thin, and we can use that for sparkling production. And in my mind, I'm like, yay, I get more sparkling. And we're making it at a, at a level where if it didn't, if it wasn't super popular in the tasting room, I would have plenty for me and my friends. <laughs> and when it came time to design the label, mom was like, well, you made this, you need to put winemaker on the back. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to do that. And she's like, you made this wine, you need, to, you need to put your name on the back. And so that, I think it wasn't until 2009, uh, well, later than that, because the label design came probably the next year or sometime, where I started to accept or realize that, that this is what I was going to be doing. So as you, as you, as you come back into the business, uh, tell me about finding your role then as, as you were... Uh, you, you're thinking you come back as like a, as you're gonna work in the cellar. Now all yeah. of a sudden you've got your name on the back of a of a bottle that you've that you've made. Uh, obviously your mom's been making the wines a long time, and and, and your dad. Uh, tell me about finding your space there and, and then starting to kind of expand it. It felt pretty organic and seamless to me actually. So um, my first harvest, I really wanted to learn the system. One of the things that happened when I was at Saint Innocent is they um, they moved from North Salem to the West Salem location. Mm -hmm. And the crush pads were totally different between the two spots. And so even though at that point, Mark had been making wine for 20 years, in the new location, it was a very different rhythm to the crush pad. And so when I, um, when I started here, I, I wanted to figure those things out, figure out how our cr crush pad worked. And I didn't wanna, um, talk too much I wanted to listen and and um, and be useful where I could be useful and that was really a lot of a, a data gathering exercise and after the harvest was over um, I asked mom and dad if I could put together the harvest plan for the following year and they agreed to let me do that and I feel like 2009 I took on uh, a more prominent role especially during harvest activities but that just kind of freed up mom and dad to be able to do other things mm -hmm. and so it wasn't I didn't even know if there was a discussion about breakdown of responsibilities it was just like okay I have this harvest plan and they're like okay well then you're gonna implement the harvest plan and I was like okay so um, at least that's how I remember it and then in 2010 um, we had a student from Burgundy come and stay with us in the spring and at the end of his three weeks with us he invited me to go work harvest in 2010 in Burgundy mm -hmm. and after that trip uh, I had such clarity about how I wanted to approach the winemaking for the Pinot Noir that I don't think that they could have um, if, if, if one of them wanted to um, to resume head winemaking responsibilities, I don't think I would have let that happen. <laughs> so um, so yeah, to, to me it just it just seemed like this natural progression and growth, and um, and and it honestly they it didn't seem like there was any kind of conflict or struggle or really even um, much hand-wringing or anything like that. Uh, this is kind of this... Sprinkles. Really? Yeah. Just got rained on. Just got rained on. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so yeah, it just, it just, it just, it felt really natural to me. Uh, you mentioned that clarity you came back with. Tell me about that clarity and about your sort of developing winemaking philosophy. Well, so for the, um, so in 2010, um, well, let me, let me back up. So, at that point, I had two vintages of Pinot Noir production here 
and I think three vintages of helping uh, with with harvest at, at St. Innocent. And um, and it was like, okay, well, should I try this or should I try that? And I had all of these um, questions about how how to how to do things. And often, at least at that time, even though I'd gone through a lot of the winemaking program at Chemeketa, um, if if you ask a winemaker about the choices that they've made, um, if they don't want to answer your question anymore, the answer will be, well, that's how they do it in Burgundy. Well, Burgundy's not monolithic. You'd probably get um, a, a, a bunch of different answers if you ask the winemakers over there. So it was great uh, about that experience is I got to ask, oh, well, why, why cold soak? Uh, why do you, why, you know, why do you follow, what's the relationship between sugar and alcohol during the fermentation? Um, you know, why uh, the, the place that I was working, um, they distemmed all the fruit that year, didn't do any whole cluster. Why is that choice being made? And um, so I got to ask all of those questions and have answers from a family that's been making wine for 13 generations. And, um, and also, I think there, it's one thing to, oh, it is a little bit. It's one thing to, to, <laughs> to drink Burgundy and look at the labels and look at the maps, but kind of like with understanding my property here, it's very different when you're immersed in that place and in that culture. And uh, I, I, just, I just felt, I don't know, I just felt like everything really came together. So I had um, a harvest plan that I wanted to implement immediately. So I think I was home for two days before we started our Pinot Noir harvest here. And the vintages were remarkably similar. So our, uh, the, the, uh, the 10 uh, harvest in Burgundy and the 10 here, um, cool, late, a little rainy, a um, lot of sorting on the, on the table. But so I felt like, whereas some other winemakers who maybe hadn't encountered a harvest like that um, were nail biting a little bit, I was, I was like, this is easy. This looks a little bit nicer, actually, than what I just came from. And, I'm gonna, and I sorted Grand Cru over there, so. Well, and I think for our style of wines in 2010, that was kind of the pivot. When Kim implemented the things that she learned in Burgundy, I really think that was kind of the pivot vintage for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you mean? There, you could tell the big difference in the wines. I mean, it's not just the fact that it was a lighter vintage and the wines were much more elegant. It just, there was clarity to them. And I just feel like there was a lot of qualities to the wine that really stepped it up for us. So if I could, yeah, if I could boil it down to, to two main things. One is I feel like before I went to Burgundy, I was very results oriented. So I'd look at the fruit when it came in and then focus on the finished wine. But I think uh, it's, it's really critical to uh, taste everything all of the time in process um, from, from before you think you're gonna start until all the way through bottling and then after bottling. Um, so yeah, just being, being present as opposed to, um, to thinking about what the wine's gonna be like as it's bottled. Um, so I'm a really hands-on winemaker. I don't, dad was talking about us growing a little bit. We can grow a little bit, but I don't want to grow to the point where I'm having to manage other winemakers. These wines need to be mine. And, uh, and then the other thing is our 22-acre uh, vineyard is split up into 27 blocks. Mm -hmm. And before I went to Burgundy, I don't, I don't know that I would have thought that that mattered much beyond 
variety and and vine density and in some cases um things like slope and 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 soil variation but now i think it's it's genius the way they have um uh a- approached the, the the harvest by uh isolating each block insofar as it makes sense to do but trying to ferment pick and ferment those lots separately so that then you can kind of figure out what that what that wine needs to be instead of trying to make it fit into what your concept of it is before the fruit even comes in mm-hmm. and and uh and so i think that everything that i've done since the burgundy trip is with those things in mind and then also the older i get the more i respect all the hard work that my dad puts into the vineyard and uh and all the choices that my mom and dad made in the early days i really want to the the wines to to reflect that that hard work and that history so becky uh, i know we're jumping ahead a little bit in time here but tell me about your kind of transition back into the business and and what you saw as your role to start and what you saw as things you needed to do uh, in your role? So, coming back into the family business, um, I definitely knew that, like, the nice thing is that Kim and I don't want the same responsibilities, so there was no arguing over who did what. Um, like, she's winemaking, I'm business management, so that was great. Um, and I did come back with wanting to um, figure out ways to kind of revamp the tasting room. And, you know, really analyzed everything from the training of the staff to flights to um, also to, um, you know, the number of my only thing is always I want to simplify. So like the number of SKUs we have, we have a lot of SKUs. So trying to dwindle those down over time. Um, And then also like the biggest thing for me was taking stuff off my mom's plate. And um, I think the, the, the biggest struggle, but once we did it, was the accounting system. And um, so that's something I really took over actually this year. I was helping mom with little things, but I did not understand the system she was using because I use QuickBooks and she uses Peachtree, which is now called Sage, and it made no sense to me. And anyway, so <laughs> um, yeah, so starting with 2020, um, I took over all the winery accounting and so mom helps me here and there now, but it's, it's just been nice to take that piece off of her plate mm-hmm. and I'm just trying to learn as much as I can from my mom and so she can really, you know, do things she wants to do and semi-retire. So, so I think that was the biggest thing was just, yeah, learning, learning my mom's duties. So you talked about kind of revamping the tasting room and, and the flights and stuff. What, 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 what did you want the experience to be? And, and, and have you gotten to where you want to be in terms of guest experience? So I'd say for guest experience, we just we were looking to, um, well, part of it when I first came on was figuring out how to cut costs because there were some high costs involved. Um, uh, and so I, I was having to like trim some hours back and figure out where we can cut costs to help make things more efficient because there was a little bit of a cash flow problem I won't lie there um, and so there's just some needing to you know get us back on track a little bit um, and um, you know we've always been known for our family hospitality and so I wanted to just you know look at and see um, how we can you know take where we were at step it up a level um, and 
I would I would say we're definitely not where we want to be. No, the um, COVID thing really threw us threw a wrench in our plans. But um, yeah, um, but and we've only been open for a week, so um, so it's been stressful lately. Yeah, but I think I. I th- I do think one of the good things about this time, though, is it's giving us a chance to really, I don't know if, if it would have been business as usual um, this whole time if we would have reevaluated the, um, the way we're doing tastings as much as we are right now, because we have to. We have to think about every single aspect. And, um, and so we introduced uh, tasting by appointment. Mm-hmm. When we when we opened back up last weekend, and then our the duties of our staff members changed. Yeah. Like before it was, you know, we had um, Kim was doing a lot of the pouring on the weekend, so people could like, you know, we, and we could we could handle multiple groups and multiple people. But now with social distancing, we really had to cut back and yeah, point, tasting by appointment. But now our staff, instead of having, um, you know, them kind of share all the tasks, we've had to split it up so that. We have two servers on the deck focusing on wine flights. We have an outdoor store person, and then we have a bar back um, who focuses on dishes and, and any food orders, or you know. So there's definitely um, a more more divided of tasks now amongst employees. Uh, you both talked about sort of taking on roles that your parents obviously had 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 in, in some ways. Uh, tell me about. Uh, I think uh, the, the idea of legacy and the idea of, of what their kind of wishes have been and their and their and where they had the business versus where you want to take it, and how you sort of balance the past and, and the future when it comes to the winemaking program, the hospitality program, and, and sort of the future of, of Kramer. Well, we did talk about doing a berry wine when we hit year thirty, and and for so like mom and dad got known for it yeah berry for wines. a few minutes. I was like, I don't want to learn how to make berry wine now. Um, so we're, we're wanna, for them. where we want to take it is the question um, compared to like their original vision. Sort of, sort of how you balance what you want to do with what with, with with their original vision. Well, so a lot of a lot of my approach. So, like you know, talking about where I want to take the wines, um, we're kind of limited now as to uh, how much more acreage we can plant. We're almost maxed out on the on the property. So I'm limited to what we have, what we have planted, what we can harvest. Uh, we haven't bought fruit the last two years, and I've really liked that um, because, and during a really chaotic time of year, uh, I know what to do with our own fruit. Whereas if we're buying grapes from another site, it could be kind of a wild card. Um, so it's within that framework. What's what's the best use of, of this fruit every single year? And so as far as where that goes next, uh, I think the the limitation. One, I think that's the best thing I could do is to recognize what the best wine to make from from each area of the vineyard is. Um, And I think that if I keep that in mind, then we'll find an audience for it rather than freak out about who our audience is going to be for this thing and then try to make a wine to match the audience. I I, I think I have to start from from the the, the product, the grapes first. and uh, so I think if I stick to that, then uh, it's completely consistent with with where they started. Mm-hmm. It's just my interpretation might be a little bit different. I don't know that. Well, I know for a fact uh, that that 
uh, 20 years ago, mom and dad would have would be shocked to see how much sparkling wine we're making right now. <laughs> to see that I'm doing a, a red and white nine variety co-fermented red um, that we introduced Paquette this last year, Petnat. They wouldn't even know what Petnat was. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think uh, some of some of those um, those pro projects that passion projects of mine. Um, those might might in some way be um, uh, uh, breadcrumbs for for what direction we're going to go next. I don't know. Mm -hmm. We'll have to uh, you'll have to talk about this again. <laughs> but I also think the projects like mom and dad have always kind of been into you know playing with unique varietals and and you know experimenting a little bit. And I kind of think that we're carrying that on by continuing to do things like Paquette, Petna, and the 27 blocks. Yeah, that's true. So, and I don't know, for me it's take, you know, carrying on and taking care of what mom and dad started because they've put so much into this place and, you know, it's where we grew up and like, I don't know, it's our, I love this place and, you know, it's, it's we love sharing it with people and, um, well, and I think it, another another piece of it too is you know we have all these people that uh, on the customer side that have supported us for this long. So with all the changes that that we're making, we want to make. How do we do it in ways where they're like totally willing to come along with us, yeah. as opposed to alienating them because we've outgrown them? Because I and and I, I think that that so far we've done a really good job of of bringing them with us. Um, and so I think that, that with, you know, the, the elevated guest experience and, you know, the crazy library chef lunches I want to do and, and, uh, and stuff like that, that, <laughs> that you still want to have, um, a level of accessibility for everyone. Um, and, and I think that not only does that keep some of your, the, your legacy people around, but it also makes your brand accessible to new people. Mm -hmm. Do you find, you, you talked a lot about kind of some of the advantages you have as second generation. Do you, have any, do you find any disadvantages? Do you find there's anything about being second generation in the industry that makes it harder on you? I have some ideas. Well, the first, well, Malik, should I say this? Go for it. Um... I can start. You start. So I think uh, disadvantages. Um, if I had to start our vineyard from scratch, would I make exactly the same choices? No. Mm -hmm. um, there's some grape varieties that we have planted. Uh, that there's some grape variety. There's one grape variety that Dad planted in 2011 that I wanted to rip out and burn sage over until like two years ago. Um, but she makes a wine she likes. I out make of a wine it, I like. So no problem. But, so. So yeah, there's there are these choices that that they've made over the years that that I wouldn't necessarily make now, and 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 I definitely if I if I had to to start over, I would I would do things a little bit differently, but uh, I, what I but I love making those wines, and so I mean disadvantage. I don't know if that's even the right word for it, um, and. At the same time, if I wanna if I if I wanna do things my way, then I, maybe I should find my own property and 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 
you know, go in that direction instead of looking backward. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the biggest thing is uh, with second generation, and I don't think this is a disadvantage either because everyone that I've met loves mom and dad, is that you do, you do carry their reputation with you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and I found that when Becky had the wine bar too, is like, oh, you're, you're Trudy's daughter, you're Keith's daughter, you're Becky's sister. Uh, so when you're, when, you're all, when you're all in the business and, and, and when your family's been in the business for a long time, um, a lot of people know them. And, uh, and a lot of stories. Yeah, a lot of stories. And uh, and so so yeah, it, 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 that that you don't have a I don't have a fresh slate in the vineyard. I don't have a fresh slate in the winery. I don't have a, a fresh slate with my relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes uh, I, I think could be a disadvantage, but I don't look at it that way. Mm-hmm. The one thing that came to my mind is um, I think what's hard is. Um, learning from my mom actually <laughs> uh, and I say that because like she's been doing what she's been doing for 30 years and I need her to break it down to me but um, I think she's so used to and it's such an everyday thing that she it's easy for her to just like do it on her own and I'm like hey mom okay I need you to slow down and you know explain this to me why does this happen and uh, I have that with dad too like, yeah i need you to draw me a diagram it reminds me of being in college and having like a 500 level professor teach an entry level class like those that's the worst experience and so that's what it reminds me of um and then you know the other thing i've noticed too since coming back to the business is i i've always known you know growing up here like that like what's happening but then i'm getting these questions like like how or why I'm like you know I need to analyze that some more uh, or you know find out that's a good question I should know that and you know like, just because that's like the one of them was with our grape carmine and like somebody asked because it gets a cross of Cab Sauv Carignan and Merlot and somebody asked me well how did they cross it and I'm like I have no idea because yeah. <laughs> it was before they could I don't know splice jeans or whatever they do yeah it's, it's it's not a GMO vine I know that so yeah so it's not GMO, yeah. Um, anyway, so there's questions like that that'll come up now and then. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Google it. Google it. <laughs> Put the grapes in a room together and turn the lights yeah. on. <laughs> Play some music. <laughs> Do you feel any added, any added pressure from that? From You talk about carrying the reputation with you. Does that add pressure to your, to your lives? Nah. I think uh, since we're here all the time, uh, it's one of those things where I guess if I sat and thought about it, maybe if, maybe if we had a really difficult vintage... Uh, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't think about that too much. I mean, I have the responsibility of that, but I also have the responsibility of my customers, my staff, the, there's a lot. And, um, and, and so, yeah, I kind of don't, don't let my, it's like worrying about rain in September. You know, it's just, it's a reality of life and you just, you know, you adjust when necessary. So you've, you obviously are both very familiar with with this place. What what is what's unique about Kramer Vineyards? What's the the site, the hospitality, the wine? What 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 makes this place special and unique? Oh man. Well, we do have a good variety of wines. Mm-hmm. I will say that. Um, I feel like if somebody comes up, we've got something for everybody. Um. The yeah. legacy. People love hearing that it was mom's hobby that got out of hand. And you know, also too, like if people ask Dad how it's go- how the winery is going, he's like better than ever, because I don't think he ever expected it to be what it is today. Mm-hmm. You know, it was their little side project that they started in the '80s. 
I do I do think though that there there is something really special about this patch of land um, specifically like like the the grapes that we grow here um, can are, 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 I, I, they just you can you can taste every single decision in the in the fruit and in the wines and um, the, and I think because of our winemaking approach, but also because of how they're presented in the tasting room, the reason people connect with us is because they're being served by people that also know a lot of that stuff. Most of our staff members have been on with us for years. Uh, most of them have helped during multiple harvests and bottling runs and are around when we're having discussions and problem solving and and. and um, so I, I think that um, that that access, that knowledge, that um, a, and that we're a family. Um, I, I think that that all of those things um, you don't you don't find everywhere, especially as the industry grows and and gets more more professional. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think one of one of the one of the ways that we can continue to to set ourselves apart is to. Um, like one of my favorite things to do is to like, ha show people or serve people a wine and, and, and be like, yeah, it came from right there. Mm -hmm. So we would be drinking Pinot Gris right now if, if you were you know, part of a, a mm -hmm. walking tour. Mm -hmm. So what are, the, what are the biggest changes you've seen to the Oregon wine industry since you've been kind of a part of it? First thing that comes to mind is all the producers that are just buying fruit and don't grow their own fruit. Mm -hmm. I think that that's been interesting. Trend. Yeah, that's true. When mom and dad got started, uh, you had to buy, you had to grow your own grapes to, to make wine for the most part. There really wasn't custom crush. Uh, and now I think for uh, a new a new producer to get in because of custom crush, uh, it's a lot easier than than the way my folks did it. It was interesting. Mom said at one point when I interviewed her about this a few years ago that she doesn't know if they would go this route if custom crush was an option for them, which to me is unimaginable. <laughs> right now did you did you have another another one beyond the um growth of producer not non-vineyard non-estate producers i just well and also i think to the other um wait sorry will you say that question again no, no, absolutely the biggest changes you've seen in the industry since biggest changes oh seeing some of the big producers swoop up wideries up here too yeah um when that first started happening, that was a little, a little scary, but also like something. I mean, it was a matter of time, I guess. But uh, I think when these big changes happen, though, when it happened in distribution, and then and then seeing the consolidation on the producer side, everyone freaks out, and then it's fine. Yeah, like that's that's pretty much how it always goes. No, it's okay. But yeah, see, seeing more outside money coming in. Um, for for sure, that's 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 been kind of a big deal. Uh, I think too the shift from um, print to digital mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. really um, a, a sea change that we don't even realize how big it is right now. Um, it's just um, 
from an advertising perspective, from a, on the consumer level, being able to get information about wines, being able to share information about wines. Um, I can't imagine my parents trying to make wine without being to look things up online. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, th that part of it is incredible. Um, I've been in the wine industry long enough to have experienced three recessions and the ones like pre-digital were much more difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Three? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's a snide way of calling someone old. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, one thing I thought about when you're talking about ch ch changes for me that I've noticed and that and that you've been a part of all along and your parents were a part of it is like you mentioned different varietals and different 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 styles. Yeah. Is that something? Obviously, it's something you take great pride in in having different things here. Have you? Have you seen other things you've seen that you want to do that other people are doing? Oh sure, yeah. I mean, there's always there's always something shiny and new and delicious that ca captures my attention and imagination. And she always gets these ideas at harvest. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, sometimes the grapes will give you a good opportunity to do something fun. Um, yeah, I, th I think just like my parents planning the Mueller Turgau and experimenting with that and planning the Carmine and experimenting with that um, and then letting me, well, them doing sparkling wine and then letting me kind of grow that program. I, I think just it's it's in us to, to want to do that, mm -hmm. to, 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 to try new things. It's, you know, but also I, listening to, to my folks talk about um, not wanting to make a 20 acre mistake. I think I don't want to make a 200 case or a 2000 case mistake. Mm -hmm. I'd rather make a 20 case mistake. And so with, with some of these projects, sometimes it's fine for that to be somebody else's deal. Mm -hmm. Like dad was really interested in Amphora a few years ago and was like, we should make something in Amphora. And I was like, cool, why? And he couldn't, he couldn't really articulate that. And so I thought, well, until you can come up with a compelling reason and what grapes we're going to put in that and how it's going to tie into everything else that we're doing, then I think we should maybe not do that. And um, whereas with uh, d doing like a pet nat made perfect sense and was really easy to wedge into everything else we have going on. That said, uh, I do need to consolidate SKUs. I have too many, too <laughs> many too SKUs. Many but, but, the, but that's usually how these, how these new products start is, is um, I'll read something interesting. I won't be able to forget about it. We'll talk about it as a family. We'll try examples of, of that great variety or that style. Um, and then figure out if what our interpretation of that would be mm -hmm. and uh and it's you know it's led to some good things and it's led to some other things we've moved on from mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh you talked earlier about uh sort of being able to chat up other winemakers for for ideas i'm curious about uh from your perspectives uh, the camaraderie of the industry the collaboration of the industry we always hear about was that true for you as you were learning the ropes in the Oregon wine industry did you have, were you able to lean on other people I think so, but it's different because when, because uh, mom and dad, when, when they were coming up and had a lot of those questions, there were like 50 or 100 people in that room and that was everybody. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, and I think that the, 
maybe the I don't know, smaller tight-knit group. Now we have all of these ways to connect. Most of the time, if I have a question, I want to ask a winemaker that I really trust and trust their opinion and think that they would be able to actually help me, I could just send them a Facebook message um, instead of having to wait for the big annual convention every year or to, or to go to something like Steamboat. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, it's grown and, and changed and uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's definitely still there, but it's not not the same. Yeah, the camaraderie is nice. Like it's weird because it's a competitive, but I think it's stronger on the hospitality side than it is on the producer side. Because with uh, what what I mean, before I got here, I was on a um, on a Zoom call with um, other tasting room managers trying to figure out how to, uh, or, or getting updates on um, what opening tasting rooms has been like. What are people doing to enhance guest experience, increase sales, um, be safe? all of that stuff and i haven't been on anything like that with producers the winemakers we've talked to have been very much enjoying the the uh the the the, the, sol the, so the solace yeah well, enjoying being by themselves and not having to deal with anything yeah i speaking for myself more of an introvert by nature so the the shelter in place uh was scary to think about on the business end of things but i was like i'm gonna get so much stuff done in the winery <laughs> Well, since we're talking about that, let's talk about about, uh, about the effects of the pandemic and, and obviously on your business and on you just just now reopening and on sort of what it how it's affected what you think of for your for the future here. Well, it was super scary. Uh, the the morning that that the shutdown order w came down, I was in the middle of drafting uh, an email to our club members, I think, about how we were going to move to tasting by appointment, and that seemed scary. Mm -hmm. And then over the course of a few hours, I was like, this is already... Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can't. We have to shut this down. This is out we of date. We have to shut down. Yeah. And so... Um, so I think for all of us, but I, mom and dad had a really hard time um, accepting that that was going to have to happen. Mm -hmm. So I think there was this period where it's like... Like it was scary for us. Yeah. Mom and dad were upset. Yeah. But at the same time, we're like, okay, we have to do something. Yeah. So there was that, okay, let's, let's feel our fear feelings and then move on and figure out how we're going to, how we're going to adjust to what's happening right this moment mm -hmm. because in a few hours or tomorrow circumstances could be different mm -hmm. and um and so the first thing we did was really focus on um on uh, um online sales online sales and uh, uh, and i was really scared to ask people to buy wine online initially mm -hmm. Because it just seemed like, well, we're scared about the, about dying from this really scary virus. Is this really the right time to be asking people to buy wine? Turns out the answer was yes after a grace period, you know. But um, but yeah, so um, so we had a, a great website set up already. Um, we have strong relationships with our customers. We have a healthy wine club. Uh, also, there's a lot of goodwill out there. People want to support a small brand. Uh, and, then, and then they also needed to have wine at home because they're not drinking as much when they go out because they're not going out. And uh, so that was, that was kind of our, like we switched from being a tasty room hospitality business mm -hmm. to being an e-commerce business overnight overnight 
for like three months. Mm -hmm. And so our our tasting room staff was, uh, was uh, they were packing up packing up boxes and dropping off packages and yeah amazing yeah so now as you're reopening what are you kind of envisioning for the for the future for yourselves um so another like big scary moment was being able so we could have opened up may 15th i think and uh and but we decided to wait and part of it is because uh we were generating enough income to not feel like we had to open from online sales we weren't seeing club members uh you know, we weren't seeing those memberships crater or really or anything like that. Um, so we felt like we could wait. We really wanted to. Um, we really wanted to be careful because there were headlines coming out, you know, every few days about some business that was going viral because they were being irresponsible. And I just, I don't know. I don't. I don't well, want to do that. Also, with all the new changes and and rules and policies and everything that were coming into place. Like, I started writing them out for our staff because we had to train them on a whole new mm -hmm. job, basically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it started out as three pages, then it went to four pages. I need to go back and re-edit after this opening weekend. It might become five pages, who yeah. knows? But um, there's just, I don't know, I just couldn't imagine opening, having opened right away. Um, and having staff ready and feeling like we were ready. Well, and also, like, a big part of it was, like, they needed to feel safe. We yeah. need to be organized for for our own safety, for their um, health and well-being, uh, that of our family, and our and anybody that comes up here and uh and so yeah it, it took it took some some planning to do and and, training, and the weather wasn't cooperating no and uh, our tasting room is is being remodeled our where our where we would normally seat people in bad weather we're using as a as a shipping um, storage storage area <laughs> so we, we just we're really not set up to to host people inside right now and good because it's not safe to be inside with a bunch of people anyway so um so yeah we wanted to wait uh until we were really really ready and um and so yeah doing tasting by reservation i was super nervous about i didn't think that our regulars would adapt i was wrong about that i mean it's been one weekend we need to be open a few more weekends to kind of gauge mm -hmm. where that's going but People have been really, really wonderful, and uh, and they're they're making the reservation. They're happy to get out. They're happy to get out. Um, we're not having to kick them off their table before the next for the before the next groups come in. Uh, we're giving them plenty of time, also. Um, but uh, so that just makes me think that there's opportunity there too. And maybe when we can safely um, do tasting at the bar again, we can still have this um, tasting by reservation that's a different experience hosted in a different area. Um, and and we can maybe think of, of some new and, in, and innovative, and, but also realistic to, for us to host uh, types of experiences where people can, um, can just experience wine in a way that that's really unique to to us mm -hmm. and so yeah i i don't know i mean i'm not happy that it's taken a virus for us to or yeah we're a global pandemic for us to um to have these conversations and do this stuff i mean we should probably self-audit every couple of years but um mm -hmm. 
Sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm going on a long time. Um, but it is. <laughs> it, but it, it, it's it's just, it's been fascinating though to see how people have responded mm-hmm. to um, to to a completely new way of doing things. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, and for for both your own for the business and, and for the industry, tell me about what your thoughts are for the future. You're talking about a little bit of growth, perhaps, but not too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your kind of next five, ten year plans for yourselves, and what do you see happening in Oregon during that time? Well, I think for our business, we kind of want to. We'd like to keep it at or below five thousand cases. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd like to, you know, to see wine club growth. I mean, the ideal thing, right, would to be wine club only, but mm-hmm. um, uh, but we'd like to see more wine club growth and. Um, And then, I, I don't know, I see the industry continuing to get stronger because we keep getting a bigger name out there across the world. Um, like, we went to Texas a few years ago, and I was I was surprised how many people either knew our brand or have been in our area. Like, it was really shocking to me how much um, Texans knew about Oregon wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. think... Uh, I mean, Oregon, Oregon Pinot is only going to strengthen its reputation. Mm-hmm. I do think that, especially the the newer, the, like the next generation of, of producers, they're probably going to um, be curious about new things and explore. Because there's a ton of cool climate grape varieties that haven't been planted here, um, or maybe are uh, or uh, or um, are here in very experimental ways and are amazing. So I think we're just barely scratching the surface as to what we should be planting. But I don't see I don't see um, Pinot Noir losing its crown anytime soon. Um, I think sparkling as a as a category is only going to grow. Um, not just because of our experience here, but I think Radiant um, being being around is has been such a game changer. And the number of winemakers I have asking um, asking me about sparkling wine is only that list is only getting longer. And um, and there's just so many reasons why it's good to have sparkling wine around. What, what, if they don't sell it, if they just have it for events, like you know, sparkling wine is. Is wine? It's a necessity. Um, it's a year-round beverage. It's a year-round beverage. Uh, so, so yeah, that that that's what I see is is that we'll probably see uh, the rise of um, of of some new cool climate obscure cool climate varieties, more sparkling wine, and then um, and then yeah, Pinot is is Pinot. Mm-hmm. So we asked your we asked your parents about working together as, as a married couple. I'm curious about, as sisters working in a business together, how do you, how, how has that worked out and how have you made it work? <laughs> or ha- if you haven't made it work, how could you do better? No, I think we're lucky actually. Um, Kim and I get along really well. We live together and work together. Mm-hmm. And not many sisters can say that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we know when we reach our limits I think we know, you know, when it when when it's a good time to discuss something, and you know when it's not, and I don't know. And I think I think because of our age gap too, that that helps a lot with that's true our relationship as well. Yeah, I think if we were closer in age, we would we would clash quite a bit more. But 
Yeah, I think as, as Becky mentioned earlier, because our um, our skill sets and our responsibilities are different, that um, it's any any conflict that arises is is usually very short lived. Um, but yeah, I think I think my my biggest uh, problem is that uh, I'm just work 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 all the time and. Uh, and so, yeah, maybe I have my, I could, I have my off switch. I could, I could, <laughs> I could be, I could, I could do my part in this relationship by um, uh, maybe uh, having better, better work-life balance boundaries. So that is true. But, but yeah, it's, it, it, I think it, I think it works really well. Um, well, and even the way we work with our parents, like I think the four of us work together extremely well. And well, and we can tag team. So, like there, are, there are times where. Uh, yeah, because there are different ways that we're better with one over the other, and so yeah, we can can definitely. <laughs> Don't give her all the secrets. Yeah. yeah. Well, then I wonder <laughs> yes. if they'll watch the interview. That situation doesn't happen a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we get along for the most part. Yeah. That's excellent. Um, someone were to come to you and ask you about joining the Oregon wine industry, what would your words of wisdom to them be? That's a thinker, because, I mean, I think you really have to love wine. I think it's it's good to, I think it's also important that you want your knowledge to grow, because it's a life, it's a lifelong learning experience. Um... But I also think, you know, if you're looking for a Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, the wine industry isn't for you because it can be, a lot of times, especially when you're just starting out, it's going to be weekends. It's going to mm-hmm. be, you know, um, you're going to work holidays. You're, you know, so I think I think that's part of it, too. You just have to realize you're going to, you know, you're going to have to do some sacrifices if you really want to be in the industry. Yeah, I Echoing that, I always want to give people like the most difficult job to see if they're really cut out for it. So if someone thinks they want to do tasting, tasting room hospitality or, or, or sell wine, go work at a tasting room for a little while and see. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's weekends, it's holidays, um, it's, it's when, a lot of other, when, when most of the people in your social circle are going to be doing things and, and you have to give that up. Um, if it's a production person, uh, my my recommendation is always to to go find a harvest internship somewhere, and and see if you. And if it's someone that wants to plant a vineyard, go work at a vineyard. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, that's two completely different things. I mean, you can romanticize about it all you want. People do this when they buy bars or start a small business. You know, they romanticize about it. They get into it and they're like, oh no. You know, this is a lot more than I thought it would be. Yeah, go to the area that you think you might want to work, take the lowest level position, and and really see. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, uh, oof. <laughs> Excellent. That's all the questions that I have for you today. Is there <laughs> anything I should have asked? Should have asked that I didn't. Anything we should have covered that we didn't cover? I can't think of anything. I don't. I don't. Uh. I don't think so. Oh, I thought you had something. I thought you were gonna, gonna like conclude drink, with a huge drink, Kramer. Huge gem. <laughs> gem of wisdom. Always, always room for a plug at the end. That's for <laughs> right. It's totally fine. If someone if someone has listened to your story this long, they're 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 they they need to be told to drink Kramer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you both so yeah. much for your time today thank for you. setting us all up for the hospitality, uh, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Hey. Okay.
Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.